lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for joining us today. Today we're going to talk about the emotionally intelligent child and how do you parent an emotionally talented child. We've got two experts with us today and they both come at it, their expertise very differently. The first is Rachel Katz and she comes at it from, she has a master in education and she studied child development. She wanted to combine two skills to write and direct children's educational television with the goal to ensure children of all backgrounds could learn while watching TV. In the mid-90s, she went to China, where she worked on various entertainment projects, including the award-winning Mrs. Lin and Friends. Her work in there impacting children in China, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. She, when she had a family, she shifted her work into the schools and she focused on social and emotional learning. In 2016, she came back to the Bay Area to head up the Bay Area Discovery Museum School. And since then, has gone on to teach social and emotional learning skills to both parents and children. Helen comes at it from a different standpoint. Helen comes at it from the cognitive science. And that's what she studied at the University of Rochester. But her focus was on developmental psychology and that sparked an interest in early childhood development. And that led to graduate studies at Stanford. She completed a PhD, where she, after which she spent the early part of her career applying the knowledge and expertise in early childhood development to creating innovative learning experiences and products for toy technology and media companies. She, in 2012, she joined the Bay Area Discovery Museum as a research director for the Center for Childhood Creativity. This is where Rachel and Helen met. Uh, Rachel's work at the museum highlighted the important role of informal education and learning outside the classroom, which is also the focus of the current work she's doing at the Brookings Institution, where she conducts policy-focused research on the role of playful learning. Ladies, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for thank having us. So I think, you know, it's so interesting that it's the Bay Area Discovery Museum that really brought you two ladies together. Yeah, I think it was a lot of, a little bit of luck. And um, if you've ever been to the Bay Area Discovery Museum, um, sorry, this is Helen talking. Um, it, it's a wonderful place, a magical place. It's uh, located in um, Sausalito, California, so just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And it's a quite unique place in that it's located on um, seven and a half acres of national park land. And it's also, I think, one, if not the only um, museum in California that has a preschool on site. And that's the preschool that Rachel uh, directed. That's pretty impressive, Rachel. <laughs> well, I got really lucky that I had an incredible partner of Helen to work with, you know, her amazing research that she was doing, and then this great um, 
school and, you know, campus, this a school within a museum to uh, explore and experiment on child development and how kids, some optimal ways that children can learn. So how long did you guys work together? We, we worked, worked together. together a, oh, sorry, you go, Helen. Yeah. Um, we worked together for about um, a little over a year. Um, but in that year, it was really a pivotal moment for what's called the Discovery School. Um, and in that, um, we really were trying to take a lot of relevant and important research findings in many different areas. Um, a little bit in creativity development, that's one of my specialties, um, also in social emotional development, and really apply those um, to classroom practices and how Rachel and her teachers interacted with the children. And that was really the inspiration um, for, for our book, The Emotionally Intelligent Child. So after the, the year of working together, life goes on, and I guess you stayed in touch with each other, and you've continued to strategize and brainstorm together? Yeah, I mean, this is Rachel. Um, it, sadly, I had to, I, my mom became very ill um, during the time that I was at the Bay Area Discovery Museum, and I took a leave of absence at first to just make sure that uh her care and was, was, you know, that she was taken care of and that she would be okay. But it became very clear to me that I just needed to, to be more on site and closer to her. And she was on the East coast. So sadly I had to leave uh, the, my work at the Bay Area Discovery Museum, but I didn't want to leave Helen at all because we were just starting to explore some ways that we could really think about um, helping children understand their social and emotional development, and then also how to talk to parents about some of the cognitive changes that go through during the early years. Um, and so Helen and I stayed in touch, and um, eventually we just were talking one night, and I said, you know, let's write a book together. <laughs> so that's sort of how this project came to be. So when Rachel said that, Helen, what was your reaction? Well, I mean, I think at first, it, yes, it was, very, it was a very exciting opportunity. And I, you know, I guess in past, in the past, I had toyed with the idea of co-authoring a book with somebody or authoring a book and it just, the time wasn't right or it just wasn't the right opportunity. And this seemed like the right time and and the right topic and Rachel's right in that we very quickly became close friends and colleagues through our work at the museum. And then unfortunately, yes, when she had to leave, um, we'd stayed in touch and we thought about different ways that we could work together. And this seemed to be uh, a really optimal opportunity to, to do that. Well, I personally know the trials and tribulations of writing a book, <laughs> and I admire, it sounds like if anything, this book has brought the two of you together, even, you know, with your goals and your thought patterns, and even stronger. Yeah, I, would, I mean, sorry, Helen, you go. Yeah. And, and um, but one thing that's interesting is the timing of it. So as Rachel mentioned, she, yes, I think one night in one of our many phone conversations said, hey, you know, what do you think about writing a book together? And that was before COVID. So that was, you know, before the world shut down and everything changed, but we wrote the book 
during COVID and did not see each other. We saw each other once um, during this whole process. So we did it all through Google Docs and a million phone conversations. But yes, you're right that it definitely brought us closer together and, and really forced us to um, you know, question and think about the right ways to convey this information to parents and teachers and educators um, because we really wanted the book to be very accessible and really engaging and knowing that you know, parents, especially of young children, are very busy people. And so um, you wanting to think about the best ways to get this information to them. So you both have unique talents. I mean, you both come at it from a little bit different perspective. So the the initial idea to write the book, did you kind of say, okay, you know, Rachel, you're better with dealing with the parents and I'm better with the theory or, and I'm just hypothesizing. But Rachel, when you decided to write this book, what was your, where did you see your strength? Um, that's a great question. I mean, definitely, you know, just Helen and I knew from our roles working together at the museum where she would sort of do the research and, and, you know, pull through all these studies and all and other research that was done and then say, okay, Rachel, how can you put this into an applied practice? And then I would test it out and then we would tweak it and sort of figure out, um, okay, well, this works, this doesn't work. Um, so we knew that I was the applied person and she was more of, um, let's like the traditional researcher of sorts. Um, and, and that made it really easy to work with. And then we decided also that the book would be done in two parts. The first part, we would really explain to parents the development of, and really look at the development of social and emotional intelligence. And we decided to look at things and research that was not common, um, that was really not common sort of in the general public, like you would go on the web and you'd search for something, but maybe you wouldn't come up with finding how like the development of theory of mind and actually how children develop language. So we took a lot of that research. We focused on theory of mind, language, the development of executive function, the impact that culture plays on uh, your child's social emotional development. And then we then came up with part two, which is a working framework, the applied practice saying, okay, now you know all this parent. Um, now here's a framework for what you can do with this information, knowing this research, knowing how children develop social emotional intelligence. We want to give you the mind framework so that you can use this framework yourself, learn it, feel comfortable with it, and then teach it to your child. And as you teach it to your child, you'll be helping them to develop their social and emotional intelligence. So, yeah, it was, it was a nice, it, just the book and our practice, it sort of all came into, um, it, it sort of all unfolded quite naturally. Anything else, you'd, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I think what Rachel said and what you said, Lee, at the very beginning is is quite is is right in that Rachel has her experience comes from, you know, in the classroom as a teacher, as an administrator, and is working with really closely with lots and lots of families and young children. 
And then my experience is more as, as a researcher, um, knowing, you know, the de developmental research in, in various areas of cognitive and social and emotional development and creativity development. And I think also at, at our experience at the museum would be, um, you know, sometimes Rachel would come to me and, and tell me a story that happened in her classroom about something a child did or a question they asked or an experience that she observed between a child and a teacher. And then we would talk together and I would say, hey, I think that demonstrates, you know, this part of executive function or shows that that child was developing their understanding of X. And there's research that interestingly shows, you know, when that develops and how it develops in children. So it's kind of this, like, you know, circular pattern where, you know, I might come to Rachel, as she said, with some interesting area of research and how that could be translated into an applied practice in the classroom. And then sometimes she would come to me with interesting examples. Um, and that's what we try to do in the book as well, right? We don't want to just like list studies and talk about studies. We really try and weave in stories, um, you know, of children and families that she's worked with and observations of children in the classroom and then say, and hey, there's this interesting research study actually that relates to this. And this is, you know, why why that behavior is interesting and why it matters and how it fits into this whole pattern of, um, you know, of development of language or executive function or or another topic. So that that's a really interesting, you know, so great that you could bring the research in the real world. Because some people really resonate in the real world and others people want to know that there's research behind it. I mean, I experienced that at the Brain Performance Center, you know, talking about, you know, it's like, well, where's the research behind that? And I've got it. And then other parents or, or other adults are like, you know, don't give me the research, you know, talk to me, tell me what it's going to do for me. So I, I definitely have seen the beauty and having those, you know, being able to come at it from both ways. So when you look at, you know, you said you wrote the book and to help parents understand. So if parents could peek inside their child's developing mind, let's start off with, and whoever wants to answer this one first, what would they learn about how and when their child begins to take the viewpoint of another person? Helen, you want it or you want Rachel to grab it? Um, well, how about I start and then I'll let, I'll let Rachel fill in. Um, Got it. I mean, I think that's it's a great question and really gets at what does it mean to be emotionally intelligent and socially aware? And I think the core of that or one core piece of that is really thinking about our thinking, right? Sort of this like metacognitive process, being aware of, you know, what we call mental states, which are our emotions, our beliefs, our intentions, our desires knowing and being aware of our mental states and those of others and understanding that for children there's this pretty long you know developmental progression that happens between you know starting at birth all the way you know, all the way through adulthood really we're always learning about this but really a, a lot of the important developments happen between birth and about age eight and an important part of that is being able to take the perspective of others and realizing that our beliefs and our intentions and our thoughts are often different than other people's. And we may take that for granted as an adult, knowing that, of course, that's the case. But kids, especially young children, they don't know that at first. And they tend to be 
what's called egocentric and really, you know, think that a simple example is young children may think, I love vanilla ice cream. So everybody loves vanilla ice cream. But as we know, that's not the case. And they come to realize pretty early on, you know, in early toddlerhood or sometimes even before that people have different desires. And if you have a different desire, that means that's going to drive your behavior, right? If you want, if you're given a choice between the vanilla and chocolate ice cream, if you like chocolate, you're going to reach for the chocolate. So again, things that we sort of take for granted, but these are developments that happen in the early years. So, and if I could add to what Helen's sharing, so imagine, you know, your your younger toddler is saying, oh, I want vanilla ice cream, and they know that you like chocolate ice cream. So they're going to even offer you chocolate ice cream because they've observed your like and dislike. But let's say you plan a surprise party for your for your partner, and you ask your child, you know, you tell your child, don't tell daddy, it's a surprise, or don't tell mommy, you know, whoever your partner is, don't tell them it's a surprise. But your child's like, guess what, we're having a surprise party for you. And the reason if they're not in any way trying to, um, to ruin the fun or take the, the party away, but they don't understand yet, that you can fool somebody. That you can have that 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 you can have this party for them, and it's actually not their birthday, or that you can plan something that they don't know about. So it's just all of this kind of um, all of this understanding about the mental lives of others really takes time. It's almost, I mean, Helen, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's almost like an eight-year kind of progression where your child really can say, oh, I get it. This person has separate feelings, separate desires, separate beliefs. They can hide them from others. I can hide my feelings from others. Um, we have false belief. We all have different opinions. You know, that kind of sophisticated understanding is a, is, is a, very, is a long progression. Well, you know, I think it's interesting to me because the examples that you gave are, you know, I get it. Do I like vanilla or do I like chocolate? But I've I've raised two boys and I've sat there and I've watched them where they can't make up because they like them both. They can't make up their mind whether they want vanilla or chocolate. So just the way that the brain processes information and, you know, there's a good reason that we start school around age six because that's when the bank five or six, but that's when, you know, the brain is our visual processing, our auditory processing has reached a, a higher state and we can begin to utilize that. So with, you know, what, what's always been interesting to me is when one of my boys could start to understand a friend, you know, to agree or disagree with a friend. They always just agreed and disagreed with each other because they were twins. So I don't, I don't think that's the same thing. But with, with a friend where they could really understand, you know, and say, no, I don't like that. What age do most children start to do that at, Helen? Um, well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, obviously, there's a lot of individual um, you know, it varies by age, but I think 
I think what you're asking about is sort of when children are starting to understand, um, yes, that, that people have different beliefs, opinions, like you said, about things. But I think the big uh, development there or development that happens in early childhood, and it can happen pretty early, as early as, you know, preschool, um, that children understand that our, act, our beliefs drive our behaviors. That's the, the important link to make. And that, again, I'll use a simple example. If I think my ball is in the garage, I'm going to look for it in the garage. If my friend thinks that it's in the house, they're going to look in the house. And again, that's something that we often take for granted, but it's, some, that it's something that children have to develop. That, again, the, the, making that link between what we believe drives our actions. And sometimes what we believe, Rachel mentioned this term, I think just in her previous answer, false belief. We often have false beliefs. We have beliefs. We think something is true, but that's not what, what is true in reality. Right. So again, I may think that my ball's in the garage, but in the reality, it might be in the yard. Right. So that's what's called a false belief. And also an important development. Again, this happens in the later preschool years. Children come to understand that you can have a false belief, but you act on what you think is true. Right. So again, if I think my ball is in the garage, but in reality, it's actually in the yard, I'm still going to look in the garage because that's what I believe. Rachel, you want to add anything on false beliefs? Well, I mean, I could just say, you know, you see it when you work with groups of children, um, especially younger ones that are just beginning to understand false belief, they can be very um, adamant that what they know and what they feel and what they say is the right way. Because, and you can try to reason with a child and say, no, but actually, and they're just like, no, it's not, it's this. Because to them, that belief is so real and so true and they feel it. And then later, as they get older, you can reason in a different way and you go, well, this is, you know, you could try the same thing and you could say, actually, this is like this. And your child can go, oh, interesting. I, I thought it was like this. Now I understand. And that's kind of that developmental shift that I think Helen is talking about. Okay. So uh, it's interesting to me because I had twins and, yeah. you know, so many of the factors were 100 percent the same. But they, mm -hmm. they came out so different and they they learn differently and they respond to different stimuli and they process information differently. Is that is that do you think a twin thing or do you think that's pretty normal within a family? I mean, I. Yeah, Helen, you, you, you speak to that. You've had experience with twins in your classroom, maybe. As an example, I mean, I would say that we are all we can't just look at, you know, theory of mind development, for example, in a vacuum and assume that that's how we understand and process the world, because actually language, the way each individual learns and uses language, the way each individual um, learns and is able to access, you know, their executive function skills the impact that your culture and your family values will have, 
and then what will also really impact how you behave and how you respond and how you communicate. So I would say on the whole, we're all, while we all pass through very similar stages of development, we're all very unique in how we use them and how we process them. Well, and thank you for for making the point on language development, because it is so important in the social and emotional development. But what can a parent do to boost their child's language development? There are so many, you know, everybody is on the autistic spectrum these days. And, and particularly after the pandemic, when kids have been socially isolated and that language, I, I've seen clients that have come, that have lost language capabilities in the two years that they were shut down. What if you see that in your a child and Rachel, do you want to answer this or do you want Helen to, to talk about what can a parent do to boost their child's language? I mean, I'm certainly happy to start, and then I know that Helen will add some really great insights. Um, so one of the things that, you know, I think that's a great observation, you know, did we lose some of our language skills during um, the pandemic? You know, because really we weren't interacting with that many people, you know, we were just sort of limited who we were talking to and who we were speaking with and the language that we were hearing from other people around us. For a parent working with a, with a child, one of the things that we recommend in our book and we give like details about how to do this is using storybooks um, as a vehicle to, to get your child to talk about feelings and to build the language of feelings. So even if you pick up, you know, your child's favorite story and it doesn't necessarily talk about how it's not a story about feelings. You can reflect with the child and you can ask your child, what do you think this character's feeling from what's happening in the story? And if you were that character, what would you say? How would you respond? And so asking questions to bring up um, feeling words, to teach feeling words, you can even as a parent sort of say, wow, you know, child, I really love what you've said. I would use this word and I would say this. So you can begin to have a conversation where you're really enriching the um, your child's language and their use of language. Helen, do you want to add anything to that? Um, no, just to say that's a great example. And this is this is sort of how the book works. So Rachel gives us an example of how, you know, we offer lots of parenting tips in the book on how parents can help support their children's language development, especially with regard to social and emotional learning. And then we talk about a study that supports this. So the interesting study that was done with preschoolers showing that in a storybook context, a story reading context, parents who talk about and mention emotions more tend to have children who are more helpful. That is such an excellent point. And we're, we're getting ready to go to break. And, and I don't want us to lose that point. When we come back from, from break, I'd like to build on that because, you know, that's, that's a real takeaway for our listeners. And that's my goal is for the, the our listeners to have, you know, if they can walk away with two to three takeaways that they can apply, maybe not with their kids, but if they can share with somebody, then that will be a real benefit. So stay with us. We'll take a break and then we'll be back. 
be back after these messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area where every spring we seem to get pummeled with hailstorms. What's another name for a thunderstorm? A cockeyed bob. The Guinness Book of World Records states the largest known hailstone in U.S. history was over seven inches in diameter. That's almost the size of a soccer ball. The famous hailstone was found in central Nebraska in June 2003. But if we think the hail's bad here in Texas, I guess it's better than living in parts of Africa, where they average 130 days of hailstorms each year. Other hail-prone areas include India, Russia, China, and Italy. The Aussies call hailstones drift ice, glazed frost, pancake ice, and frost flowers. I wonder how they measured hail before the invention of the golf ball. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So right before break, we were getting into a real interesting conversation. Helen, the researcher, was explaining about some research that's out there that really shows about children's emotions when they're reading books. Helen, could you pick up on that? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So, you know, Rachel was giving the really interesting example of how to build children's language skills, how parents can help build their child's language skills, especially related to social emotional development. And she was saying, you know, to take the opportunity when you're reading to your child to talk about emotions in the book. How is the character feeling? Why do you think they're feeling that way? Maybe how could you make that character feel better? And then an interesting area of research has looked at actually parents reading or caregivers reading to their young children, preschool-aged children, and showing that when they talk about emotions more or use emotion terms more, children tend to be more helpful, more pro-social, as we would say. So they would tend to um, run over quicker to pick up something that somebody has dropped or quicker to uh, run over to a friend that they see needs help or is upset. Right? We all want our children to be helpful and caring and compassionate. And so what what drives those behaviors or what can we do to encourage children to exhibit those behaviors? 
And so that's one interesting study that has shown actually when you read to your child talking more about emotions, and those can be, I think it's important to mention those can be positive emotions and negative emotions. Parents are often scared to talk about emotions that are negative, things like fear, um, sadness, nervousness, anxiety, but those are emotions that children feel. And so those are emotions that children need words for and need opportunities to talk about. So it's important that parents remember and caregivers remember that talking about all types of emotions is important. So, Rachel, what advice do you have for parents? And I'm sure you talk about, I'm sure you give a lot of advice for parents in the book. But what what advice do you have for parents when they struggle with talking about the negative? Because, you know, it's easy to talk about balloons and rainbows. Everything's great. It gets a little bit harder when we have to talk, you know, about, oh, I'm having a bad day. Um, I think some of the vi- advice that we give in the book is, to be really timely with how and when you respond to your child. A great example is, you know, um, in the book, there's a, there's a, there's an example where a parent is not having a great day themselves and they're just not particularly feeling just a hundred percent. There's just a sort of a lingering sadness. And when their child wants to talk to them about their own sadness, it might not be the right time for the parent to sort of go into that. And you can gently say to your child, wow, I love that you want to talk about this feeling of sadness. And I really want to talk to you about it. And I'm going to think about what you've asked and I'm going to get back to you. And you can actually give yourself some time to respond when you're feeling better to respond when you have found the right words that you want to use to talk about sadness and how to introduce it to your child. And then, yeah, I mean, it's really just about the timeliness and it's okay. And it's okay to say to your child, not right now, because sometimes I feel like we have the urgency and the desire to respond to our child right away. But really the best thing we can do is come to our child when we're very intentional, when we have decided what we're going to say, how we're going to say it, and that when we're feeling in the space, um, in a confident and an okay space to talk about these things with our child. Well, I think you make such a good point there because as, as a parent, we I, I can remember feeling like, oh, I have to have the answer. I have to have the answer. But I didn't have the answer. And by just saying, you know, let me take some time and think about that shows that you care. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, this is going to be a conversation that most likely your child will remember if it's the first time that they're feeling something and you're going to help them to learn the language of these feelings you really want to think about it and be as intentional as possible because this will most likely be something that your child will remember. So in the book, I mean, I know you share a lot of effective strategies, but is there a framework that you kind of use to, to base for a lot of your advice to, uh, to parents on how they respond to their children's actions 
so that they're they're more patient and less reactive or is it just different on in every circumstance helen so we do have a framework and it's called the mind framework and i'll start on this one but i definitely want to turn it over to rachel to get into a little more detail on it as she mentioned earlier on the show we have two parts of the book and in the first part of the book it's really about um you know, we talk about research in a couple different areas, theory of mind, language development, executive function, and then family culture. And then in the second part of the book, we turn to taking that information and knowledge and how you can apply that. And we thought the easiest and most practical way to do that was to create a framework that hopefully is easy for parents and educators to remember. And it's called the MIND framework, each letter standing for um, a, a critical component of our approach. So M standing for mindfulness, really taking time, you know, to observe your thoughts and feelings without immediately reacting. So just what Rachel was talking about in terms of timeliness, the I is for inquiry. And this is about continuing to ask questions, ask questions about your child's actions, and then listening to their response with respect and then having them ask questions as well. So all around inquiry and questioning and for non-judgment. And this is avoiding judgment by really observing your child and then thinking about their development and their needs. And then lastly, the D is for decide. And this is being very intentional versus impulsive about how you respond to your child's actions. Intention yeah, so is I, always needed. Right, Rachel? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And um, if I could add to just something where how, the end for non-judgment that Helen had mentioned, where you're, you know, we can sort of sometimes one of the things that we do as parents is that we can tend to compare our child to other children. And we, you know, let's say if someone's reading earlier or if someone's talking earlier, we're like, oh, what's happening to my child? Or a social emotional example is, you know, you see your child not sharing in a playground and you feel really frustrated by the fact that, oh, my child, they're not able to share. And so instead of sort of blaming yourself, thinking that you're responsible or thinking that something's wrong with your child, sort of sort of defaulting to like, you know, um, of judging your child for not being able to share, pulling back and asking yourself, huh, I wonder what my child needs right now. I wonder why they might behave that way. And one of the needs that we forget is, you know, we think about, is my child hungry? Is my child, um, you know, wanting to have fun? But one of the needs that we tend to forget is that our child's need for agency. You know, young children learn by doing. And so they're watching the world around them and they're trying things out and they're, they want to do things on their own. And so sometimes, for example, if your child's not willing to share the shovel right away, it might be that it's their need for agency. It's their need just to figure out and keep using that shovel so that they learn how to scoop that sand. And they're so involved in that, they're not necessarily thinking, okay, I'm going to just hand over the shovel right now to this other person who's waiting, and then I'll get it back later. For them, it's like, nope, I am going to figure out how to use this shovel, and then 
maybe later when I'm done with sort of the learning and the doing and the experimenting, I'll hand it over. So it's really important when you're going to that place of non-judgment and asking yourself, what is my child needing right now? Put into that sort of um, questioning, that inquiry about what my child needs and, and ask yourself, do they need some agency? Do they need to learn to do this on their own? And could that be a reason for their behavior? I love that. I mean, that's such a simple a question to ask. What does my child need right now? I, I think that's that's a takeaway for me. And I just have a new grandbaby. So she's only four months old, so I won't be using it yet. But that is a takeaway for me that I will be using with her. Thank you. I'm glad. <laughs> so, you know, when we, th- when we look at the book, you know, the, the name of the book is The Emotionally Intelligent Child. Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids. So that's an interesting title. When I saw it at first, I thought, well, is the unemotionally intelligent child, would you have different strategies for for that child? Um, Or is it, what's the difference? Is there a difference, Helen? I'm sorry, Lee, the, qu- the question again. Uh, so would you, approach, mo- would you approach yeah. an emotionally intelligent child the same way that you would an unemotionally intelligent child? Well, I think one way to look at it is there's no, there's no unemotionally intelligent child, right? Okay. Like we're, we're, you know, we're born being pro-social, helpful, craving social interaction with others. That's, that's part of our human nature. And I think it's, it's, as with many things, to look at it on, on a spectrum, right? Children are born with certain capacities, but those need to be developed. And so I think Rachel's and my goal, or one of our goals in the book, is to provide strategies for parents, you know, things that they, you know, can do in everyday settings. We're not asking them to you know, start another class, you know, put their kid in another after school activity or anything. We're asking them to just think about their everyday interactions with their child at breakfast, at nap time, at drop off time or pickup time from preschool and ways, questions they can ask and ways that they can think about their children's behavior that may give them some insight, like Rachel just mentioned, into what their child needs as an explanation for why they are saying or doing or not doing what their parents thinks they should do. And so I think what we, you know, something we say in the book is really trying to get into your child's head to really think from the perspective of your child and know that at different stages of development, they are understanding different things again, about their own mental states and and other people's mental states and emotions and intentions and so forth. And that that's so critically important for how we interact with other people, right? How we understand our own mental states and other people's mental states impacts and shapes how we interact with other people. And I think as earlier in the show, I think you mentioned, you know, COVID has said, has had such a dramatic impact on our lives. And for young children, I think it's especially, and for parents, it's especially highlighted that children's social emotional development is so critical for 
their success in, in the classroom and in life. And of course, the, the academic skills like math and literacy and science, those are all obviously important as well. But really, what children really need is a strong foundation in social emotional skills so that they can navigate, you know, this very tricky and very quickly changing world. And that, yes, they need often need help with math and science and those academic subjects. But I think there's less guidance for parents for social emotional skills because it's tricky. It's not easy to to know what your child's thinking. Um, and so therefore it's hard to know how to support that and how to develop those skills. Well, you make a really good point. If you, it, it is hard to know what your child is thinking. So Rachel, if you don't know what your child is thinking, how do you help them to, you know, face those difficult challenges and do it in a way that they feel good about it? They're curious about it. They, they have some confidence about it. What advice could you give parents on that? So one of my favorite techniques that I've used over the years and that I've seen, um, you know, educators and parents use is sort of um, using puppets or using an, like taking an inanimate object and pretending that it can talk. <laughs> and it sounds a little bit crazy, but it's a great way to get your child talking about what they're feeling and what they're experiencing, because your child is really used to answering you, seeing you, seeing the parent, seeing the caregiver all the time. And they're, and children, like adults, you know, we, we seek novelty. We seek newness. And when something is new, especially for a child, they get excited, they want to play, they want to, they want to answer, they want to interact. So sometimes if a kid is really down, or if you want to talk with your child about how they're feeling, pick up a sock, stick it on the end of your hand, you know, push it in, so the shape it so that it looks like it can talk. And then have a little conversation with the sock and say, hey, you know, sock, how are you feeling today? And you can answer. The sock can actually, you know, I'm feeling kind of, you know, I'm feeling kind of sad today. And then the sock can turn to the child and say, you know, hey, what's your name? <laughs> you know, and the child will laugh because, of course, they think, of course, you know my name. And, you know, you're just playing with your child. And then the sock can actually interact and engage with the child. How are you feeling today? Why are you feeling this way? And you'd be so surprised how much more willing your child is to answer something when it's new, it's fun, and you're having sort of a playful moment together. So, Well, you're so correct because the brain loves that novelty. Anything that's novel, the brain is all about. And so, I mean, I just, I think you're just so right with that approach. And when you were talking about the sock, and I, I started laughing, I had to cover up the microphone. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, you know, I was thinking about your grandchild, you know, you can be having all these puppet shows. <laughs> Absolutely. And I can get lots of socks that are all kinds of different colors. Yeah. I mean, there are just so many fun sort of novel ways to play with your child, to get them talking about your emotions. And we list all of these in the book. So whatever we mention now, really their instructions, it's, it's as detailed as you'll know what materials to buy in the book. We sort of 
those tips that we give, we sort of treat them as if they're a recipe, you know, buy this, here are the ingredients, this is what you need, and this is what the action steps that you take. And then, of course, it's backed by the science and the research to say this is why you're doing it, and this is what it will impact and how it will impact your child's social and emotional development. So, Helen, is there any research that stands out in your mind that for, for, because, you know, we do have those listeners out there that they want the research, they want, they like the research side of it. But is there any research that just stands out in your mind that speaks to the novelty? That's an interesting question, because as you and Rachel were, were talking about that, there is, and it's, it's actually with infants. And so I think we mentioned in the book, um, some studies showing that even for, for young infants, the way that researchers do um, studies with infants, because obviously, obviously they can't talk yet, right? So they can't, you can't ask them a question. They're not able to answer yet. So how, how can they show you what they're perceiving, what they understand? And one um, method for doing that is novelty. So if you, for example, doing language development research and you want to know, do infants uh, sense a difference in, can tell the difference between two sounds, speech sounds, for example. One way to do that is to play a sound and to play the same sound over and over again. And then you introduce a new sound. And if the baby sort of perks up or happens to look in a different direction, that shows they notice the difference. Right. So then that indicates that it takes advantage of their interest in novelty. So this interest in novelty is something that starts very early. And so this is just, you know, it's what we call paradigm and experimental method that lots of researchers use. Again, it's a really clever way for us to sort of get inside a baby's head. So we know something about what they're thinking. We can they, they are telling us, oh, I noticed something different. So that's well, you know, that's so interesting because, and I don't want to talk about the grandbaby too much, but I just got back from being with her in Baltimore and she's four months old and she's just learned how to roll over. And so every time she would roll over, I would clap. Oh, good job. Good job. Well, she started just rolling. <laughs> she was like, I like this <laughs> feedback. I really like yeah. this feedback. And, you know, yeah. my husband was watching. He's like, it's amazing. She's four months old, but she knew she picked up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, and, and I don't know if you did this, but maybe it was not only clapping, but if you were saying, you know, you're talking at the same time, she probably doesn't yet understand the, you know, the words that you're saying, but your intonation, probably the excitement, right? So she hits, you know, babies do sense like the, you know, the intonation, different, um, the ways we use our voice, she was probably picking up on that as well, right? And knowing that's good, you know, that's good. The clapping and this, you know, excitement in your voice is probably, yeah, something that she enjoys. So, um, but that's great. That, that's a wonderful example. Well, and it just, you know, you, you guys are giving such good examples and putting it in layman's terms because sometimes I can remember as a as a parent feeling just overwhelmed you know we've got about five minutes left in the show and we've talked about the emotionally intelligent child effective strategies for parenting self-aware cooperative and well-balanced kids and in the book parents and caregivers and grandmothers 
can learn all about the stages of development that children go through as they gain social awareness and emotional malice. And, you know, you mentioned the mind framework, and that can be very helpful for it. It's, you know, when you you discuss that, and I thought, well, you know, it'd be good for me to know the framework that my son and his wife are operating off of so that I can reinforce that and not come up with my own framework and, and confuse. And I think my takeaway is from what we've talked about is that we really have to shift our thinking. And instead of thinking about as an adult, we have to think about the child. And you know, when you said ask, think about what does your child need and build on that because through that, you can really support their social and emotional learning. So there, I think there's an awful lot of really good goodness in the book. And I would like, Helen, for you to give two, two of your favorite short comments about the book, and then Rachel, you to do the same thing. Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a great question. And I think I'll, I'll just build on something you said, Lee, and it's really making this information and research accessible and engaging and understandable for very busy parents and, and educators. And I don't think one thing we've mentioned yet is the book also has infographics in it or illustrations um, to really sort of drive some important points home. So we know that people digest information in different ways. So that's another way that we present the information. Um, we had a fabulous graphic designer working with us for that. So that's one thing that I just wanted to mention about the book. And then, yeah, and then on the mind framework, really trying to put it into actionable steps, maybe for lack of a better term, um, to for parents to think about in their daily routines. And then also importantly, to talk about with their children so that their children can actually understand the mind framework. And that's something Rachel has much more experience in talking about because she has used it and talked about it with children that she has worked with. So again, really trying to break down the research and making it actionable and purposeful um, for parents and um, caregivers and children. So Rachel, in the last two minutes we have, share your insights with us. Well, my insights are, I don't want any parent ever to feel alone. You know, we're all of us who are parenting, we're all in this together and we're all going through something. Um, you know, there are moments when our children are incredibly self-aware and cooperative and well-balanced. And then there are moments when they're not, and you are not alone. And this, the research will help you to understand that you are not alone, that many things that you're observing and you're witnessing are developmental. And the other really important thing is that we are all of the things that we share in the book, um, executive function, language, family culture, these are all skills that can be developed and refined. And we talk about them as if they're muscles. So even if you're feeling like, oh, I'm not doing this yet, or my child's not doing this yet, be patient, be open, be understanding with yourself, really open-hearted and open-minded, and know that everything is developable. And it's a muscle and you can build it and that these are skills that you can grow and nurture over time. So I think that that's what I'd like you to take away when you read The Emotionally Intelligent Child. So listeners, 
two words. You can muscle up. <laughs> Where The book is on Amazon, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids. I encourage everybody that's got those younger children to pick up a copy. Ladies, thank you so much for being with me today. Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com.